Hello and welcome to the Presenting Complaint podcast with me, Adam Norton, and me, Dr. G. Ah, oh, lovely. We did well on that intro again. We're on a roll. I mean, it's two for two. We did. Okay. Yeah, two for two. Uh, two out of uh, whatever. What are we on? 16 <laughs> or 17, maybe? <laughs> yeah, too many, too many episodes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, today we're joined, and we're, I think we're very honoured, I'd say, to be joined by someone I first came across, uh, our guest. So I think someone on Instagram must have shared one of his kind of. Uh, workflow explanations on their story and I clicked on it and I just thought they were incredible because I think one of the biggest things I've always struggled with on Instagram is you see these this amazing work but it's seeing especially being so experienced in dental school it's seeing what the dentist is seeing or what the other person's seeing and having someone point out I'm looking at this crack here and this is why I've reduced this course but I'm looking at you know this thin marginal ridge it's amazing because I'm just looking going, oh, tooth, oh, tooth cut away. Like, you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I just thought it was amazing. I think we've had a few messages back and forth and, yeah, we've we've got him on the podcast. So, uh, welcome to Dr. Zahid. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Um, let's have a little introduction about yourself and we can crack into uh, a few questions. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Um, so yeah, so my name is Zahid. I am uh, a general dentist. I work in Essex. Um, uh, I graduated in Dundee, in Scotland, in 2016. Um, I did my DCT in London, and then I've worked in and around London ever since. Yeah. Lovely, cool. lovely. Um, and I, yeah, I think as I was saying, the the thing that's really excited me to have you on is is your kind of your documentation and your work is just so incredibly consistent and beautifully kind of executed every single time so um you know you can tell just straight away you've got a real interest in kind of adhesive dentistry using modern techniques so just as a kind of i probably see where you are as somewhere where i'd want to be in 10 years time or whatever so to give people who want to be in your position an idea less. of less uh, <laughs> and I, of kind of what, what, you, what does your what does your what does your day look like now like um how many patients you seen in a day i imagine you're working in private practice um what how you know are you just seeing a lot of exams or is it a lot of these kind of treatments how much of a representation is your instagram to um kind of what your days look like so yeah, so I work in uh, in private practice. Um, obviously, I used to work in NHS practice, so, but the the number of patients that I see is a lot less, and I can spend a lot of time with the patients that I see now. Um, but let's say on a on an average day, maybe I'd see five or six patients for restorations. Maybe I'd do one endo, maybe a prep here or there. Could fit in a few emergency patients, maybe an extraction. It just depends on how the day goes. But that's what I love about general practice is that every patient is different, every uh, appointment is different, and um, it varies a lot. And that's that's what I like. Like, I can't eat the same thing more than three days in a row. I can't do the same dentistry all the time, every, every day. So, yeah. Um, and in regards yeah. to... In terms of the treatments that I do and the sort of modern adhesive stuff, it's the stuff that I've basically learned uh, over time, just looking at what people are doing on Instagram, looking on Facebook as well. Um, when I graduated from university, especially when I was at university, there wasn't much 
around in terms of online dentistry, in terms of people showcasing mm-hmm. their work, or if it was, I was just too focused on passing exams. Um, mm-hmm. But um, over time, yeah, so I've focused in on seeing what other people are doing and trying to inter- implement that into the work that I do. Um, you mentioned uh, about uh, how I got to the stage that I'm at. And to be honest, it's all from just critiquing my own work. Um, it's just mm-hmm. being obsessed with being as good as I can be and really being hypercritical on my own work. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I didn't, I just woke up and I was, I was the dentist that I am today. You know, it takes hard work, it takes dedication, it takes investment in yourself, all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah. And that um, comes across a lot. So I had, I, I'm, I, because of the Instagram algorithm, I didn't really come across you until Adam sent sent you over to me um, in the DM showing your amazing work. And again, like he was saying, he wanted to get you on early on the show. And it, I'm someone who I quite regularly say I really, to a fault, compare myself to people on Instagram. So usually whenever I see this fantastic, perfect dentistry, I kind of like a little piece of me just wants to run away from it. <laughs> but as I just swipe through the photos again, Adam was saying you've got such a lovely way of showing your workflow, showing how we can also implement this. And then what I love further, which is what you just touched on, I just love your reflections as well. I just love people who, when they post something, they're able to reflect on it open and mm-hmm. honestly. And again, in a way that I can learn from it, I can take from it rather than saying, look at this, that's what I did. How good am I? You know, so it really shows the genuine uh, genuineness there. And uh, that's why I gave you a follow. So um, with regards to that, um, and something that Adam mentioned before, not all my dentistry is perfect every single time that I do it. But I have the mentality that, so because I work in general practice, a lot of the patients that I see, I see for recalls regularly. So if I'm going to do a crap restoration, I'm going to have to look at that every single time the patient comes in. And every time I look at that, I'm going to want to replace it because it's just the way that I am. I mean, I had a nurse once that told me that told the practice manager that I was a perfectionist to a fault. So she liked that I was a perfectionist, but not when I run over into lunch. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so, definitely, yeah. definitely i think it's it's a it's a common trait i think among among dentists having that kind of perfectionist mentality and like i said a lot of times um even so early into my career as a dft it's it's got me into i guess the nurse's bad books or you know that that type of thing um so let's let's take <laughs> it doesn't take much um let's take you back to your time as dft and were you always this kind of you know passionate about dentistry wanting to implement new things uh, how did you approach your dft year what was your experience like just to just to start with so um if i go back even further than that i think i think it would just be helpful for people to know that you know not everyone's perfect so when I, when I finished, uh, when I applied for university in, was it a, a, a end of year 12? Uh, and I did my um, UK CAT, I absolutely bombed. Like, my mind was just like, I'm focused on, if I, if I fail this exam, I'm not going to get into dentistry, and then I won't have a career. And obviously, I knew with the UK CAT that every answer you get correct, the next answer after that is more worth more points. So I knew if I, if I messed up the first question, I was going to mess up my score and all that was going through uh-huh. my head. And I basically bombed my UK cat. I applied to five universities. I didn't get into any. So then I had to take a gap year 
And for the first six months, I was sitting around doing nothing, basically. Um, I was just being a bum at home. And then for the second six months, I worked in the cinema. And I was working there and I was just looking at all the people that I was working with, especially the older lot. And I was just like, this is not where I want my life to be. So that uh -huh. drove me. And then when I got into, I mean, I did my UK cat again, second year. I did a little bit better, not massively better, but it was enough for me to get into university. And Dundee took me with open arms. So I was more than happy to be there. Um, and uh, yeah, I just went in with my head down and I tried to learn as much as I could and implement all of that. First, <clears throat> first couple of years, I like got top in, in the exams and everything. And then third year, after I started having a little bit of fun, it started to go down a little bit. But my aim was always to graduate with a distinction because nice. I, um, sorry, graduate with an honours because I wanted to go on and do max facts. That was my aim. So I was right. set on going back to university, doing medicine again, or doing medicine and then becoming a max facts surgeon. Then fast forward, when I got into, um, when I got into London for my DFT, I was just like, goodbye Scotland I'm going back home <laughs> and um, and yeah so when I started DFT I was very fortunate that in the practice that I was working in um, I had one of the associates that worked at the practice was very passionate about endo and about dentistry in general so he helped mm -hmm. me a lot and gave me a passion for endo which I have now which I'll hold with me as far as I go on so shout out to Junu um, uh, but other than that, I was using the, um, I was using the principal's camera and it basically lived in my surgery. I was taking photos of everything I was doing and I was just critiquing it and I was sending it to some of my friends that I had in DFT and I was like, look how bad this is or look how good this is. And we were just, uh -huh. we were just passing around ideas and criticisms and trying to learn from each other to get better. Um, but yeah, as soon as I hit DFT, I was just like, you know what, forget this. Max Fax life. Like I enjoy general practice. I enjoy being around patients. Um, I enjoy the intricacies of the little bits and pieces of the this millimeter and that millimeter and this functional cost. All that stuff that I just did not want to know about when I was doing my uh, restorative lectures when I was at university. I just soaked it all up. And then since then, it's just I've just stayed with it. Now you're asking about uh, DFT. So I worked in a practice in East London, which was a very high needs practice. It was on a mm -hmm. high street. It was on Ilford Lane, if, if you know where Ilford is, yeah. And every patient I was seeing, I mean, I guess this is maybe a, a similar situation for most people, but uh, I didn't complete my UDA quota that I needed, but I did more than enough of all the treatments that I had to do because I was doing one or two endos per patient, taking out multiple teeth on the same patient, making dentures, doing crowns, like doing, doing all sorts. Um mm -hmm. And I did a bunch of private treatment as well at the practice. I mean, the principal loved me. He gave me an iPad when I left. So I <laughs> obviously made him enough money. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no. So um, I, really, I really took DFT with both hands and I did the best that I could do. Um, we also did like a BSSPD um, project as well, like a service evaluation on tooth restorability. Um, and we got that published uh, at the BSSPD conference. Uh, me and my friends Amiji and Brendan. Uh, so yeah, like it's, it's all, it started from the beginning. Like I was really, I really tried to be as involved as I could be with the whole process of DFT. I understood that this was just a stepping stone and everything that I was going to do in that year was going to help me going forward. So I didn't let it, I didn't let myself get bogged down with difficult patients or a lot of the patients that I treated as well didn't speak English. 
So either the nurse had to translate for me or we had to use Google Translate or just try and get by. Wow. But they're all mm-hmm. they're all grateful and thankful for all the treatment that they received. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was it was a massive learning curve. I mean when I yeah. when I was at university, we were taught only rotary files. We weren't taught any hand filing because we yeah. were told that rotary was the future. And then I get into DFT uh-huh. and the principal's like, nah. First six months <laughs> hand files only. Wow. Yeah. So then I had to go and learn how to use hand files during my DFT uh-huh. year. So yeah, yeah, it was yeah, it's been a journey, let's say. <laughs> it's interesting. It's... And and how did you how did you then kinda so I guess not wanting to do max facts, I guess, maybe and enjoying the practice environment so much mm-hmm. that DCT wasn't the the next or the most uh obvious next stage for you but how did because i think that's the next kind of big decision i'm having to make as a an fd we've got dct opening in january and half of me is like i need some more uh, exposure to surgical skills it would be good to work in a hospital environment and the other half of me is like i love restorative i enjoy more than anything restorative dentistry endo crowns bridges you know day-to-day things Mm -hmm. and i I, will i de-scale and also will i just not enjoy that other side of dentistry and just miss being in practice so how did you kind of evaluate that and then with staying in general practice um did you stay in the same uh, practice another year after fd year or how did you then decide where was the next right step for you so um it sounds like you're having all these conversations in your head at the moment adam yeah <laughs> but um yeah no so yeah i had the same situation so it got to the point where everyone was talking about should we go to DCT or should we go into practice? Uh-huh. Or what should we do? And um, I wasn't really sold on DCT. I mean, I understood the whole thing about, you know, just do your year at least, understand what it's like uh-huh. to be in hospital or do a MaxFax job uh, and then go into practice. I wasn't that fussed about it, but I thought, let me just apply anyway because everyone is applying. But my criteria was that if I'm not going to be in, if I don't get a place in London, I'm not going to do DCT. Mm. And sure. I didn't get a place in London, so I decided not to do DCT, but I was really disheartened and disappointed in myself that I didn't get a place in London. Because then I realized that now I've done five years of dentistry and then a sixth year in DCT, uh, DFT, and I've been in the system. Like there's, there's an end, I know where the end is. Like at the end of the five years, I graduate. At the end of DFT, like within DFT, that's all done. If I do DCT, yeah. then that's another pathway that I know I'm on. Yeah. But going into uh-huh. practice is like, oh my God. It's scary. I don't know yeah. what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to have a job. Mm. Uh, I don't know what my principal is going to be like. I don't know what the job's going to yeah. be like. Am I going to like it? Am I going to get, am I going to have to leave? Am I not going to get along? It's, there's so, there were so many variables. It's like you're out in the wild west, you know, when you go into practice. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I was very, I was very scared about the next step. Um, and I remember when I, so I ended up getting a job in a practice in Holloway, which was uh, in North North London. Um, and it was an NHS practice. Um, I think I was on 6,500 UDAs, like straight after DF, uh, DFT. Wow. I was okay. just, yeah, into smack, well, I was supposed to be smashing the UDAs. Um, and I was doing that five, five days a week. Um, uh-huh. And I mean, initially when I started, um, I remember my first month, I think, yeah, my first month, my um, my DFT trainer or the, the practice that I was work, had started at, um, when they were sorting out all the superannuation stuff, they ticked the wrong box. So then NHS decided to take 
more money from me. So asked my principal from DF, DFT for more money that I had to give him because he was going to give to them. And then ba basically what it meant was at the end of my first month, the principal of my um, associate practice was like, look, you've basically got no money this month because everything is going to superannuation. So what do you want to do? It was like, I can give you some and then like we can figure it out next month. But I remember I was just like so depressed. I remember standing at the train station, standing at the tube station, waiting to go home thinking like, I will, like, I was so depressed. I couldn't believe the situation I was in. And I was just like, I will succeed. Like, I will make this work. Like, no matter what, I will be successful. Like, I couldn't get more low than basically having no money uh -huh. at the end of the month. So, um, so yeah, I mean, as well. sorry. After you, you were in practice, now you're you're yeah. in the grind, yeah. and then to almost be rewarded with nothing. Yeah, it was uh, it was bad. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, after that, it all got sorted out, and it was fine. They they sorted out yeah. the right paperwork and everything. But um, mm, cool. but yeah, I mean, I started off from the lowest of the low, so there was only I could only go up, you know. Uh-huh. So yeah, um, and you saw that did you see that year out with the six thousand six thousand five hundred UDAs? I mean, I don't remember how many UDAs I ended up doing because the principal was fairly uh -huh. not it was a pretty much it was an associate led practice. The principal was right. like kinda there, kinda not there. So I had uh, other more senior associates that I was working with that sort of looked after mm. me and then I sort of grew in that role while I was there. Because I had lots of flexibility mm. in terms of what I could do in terms of how I managed my UDAs. I mean, as long as I was there or thereabouts at the end of the month, then it was okay. And as I was going mm -hmm. through the months, I was kind of getting used to the UDA system and understanding how, how it works and um, how to manage patients in that way. Um, but yeah, no, I had a lot of help from, um, shout out to Harry, uh, who helped me a lot when I was in, um, when I was in my first, first job. Um, but yeah, even him, like his camera lived in my surgery. Because he didn't use it, I used it. And probably yeah. my photos from then are still on his memory still card somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I was, I was just reflecting constantly from the beginning. Like not even just, uh -huh. oh, I'm going to take photos because it's a private patient or private treatment. I'm going to take photos of my amalgams. I'm going to take, fo take photos of the endos that I did with hand files. So yeah, even that practice, when I was there... If you wanted to use a rotary file on the NHS, it would get charged as a lab fee. Wow. Yeah. So Damn. I had blistered fingers. Imagine four canals and upper six hand filing. <laughs> How long did that take you? Oh, God. I, I have no idea, but I had blistered fingers, honestly. <laughs> it was nice. bad. It was bad. And, and like step back from a size, <laughs> whatever it was, like a 20, 20 yeah. or a 25 up to a, like a 50. Yeah, Crazy. It, on, four, on four canals, way. yeah, it was, it was nuts, it was nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And is that something that you'd recommend for um, people in FD? Would you recommend definitely doing another year uh, in NHS, you know, making your mistakes, getting, you know, efficient, quick, or, mm -hmm. or not? Or what would you kind of, would you still go down that route? So, I mean, I wouldn't change anything from what I had, I have done that's gotten me to this position. I don't regret any of the decisions I've made that have gotten me here um, because it's all been a learning curve to get me to where I am. And mm -hmm. anyone that I speak to, I tell them like, okay, you might want to, maybe you're sitting in your NHS practice and you're looking at your sort of your, your pay slip at the end of the month thinking how much blood, sweat and tears you put in 
to this month and you've been chasing UDAs and then you look at your pay slip at the end of the month and you're just demoralized. Yeah. I mean, I've been there. I know how that feels. But, um, but I wouldn't say that I would change anything in terms of what I learned during my time on the NHS because I learned how to communicate with patients. I learned about different personality types that patients have. I made mistakes. I, I had arguments with patients. Um, and I learned from those arguments. I learned about the difference between treating a patient and treating a tooth because they're two very mm-hmm. different things. And at the end of the day, we treat patients, we don't treat teeth. So you can do the best endo you can do in the world, but if the patient had to go through three or four appointments or three or four weeks of pain to get to that point, it does not matter. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the, the volume of patients that you see as well, it gives you an opportunity to see where you're being, um, slow with your treatment and where you can improve. Um, it also helps you a uh, treatment plan because most of the time, well, especially if you're working in a high needs practice, there's more than one thing going on and you're not just mm-hmm. sort of doing checkups and that sort of stuff and just doing, just milling them through. It's always lots of treatment that you need to do. Um, and then learning how to communicate with patients in terms of the different treatment options um, and learning about how to, how to talk about private treatment options and NHS treatment options and managing it in that way. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't want to call the NHS a learning ground for dentists because that's not what it is. It's a service for patients Mm -hmm. that can't Mm -hmm. necessarily afford private care exclusively. Um, but it's definitely an area where you can learn so much for your career moving forward. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I just want to ask, so, you know, you said, um, moving obviously from a, system of five years of dental school where you've got an obvious path dft obvious path dct obvious path to becoming an associate um and it's all very scary and it's all very random Mm -hmm. i assume you've moved on from that practice um maybe a couple of times the one that you did uh your first year as an associate Mm -hmm. what are what is your advice to dfts or young dentists or whatever in looking for a um a new practice, a good practice, you know, I guess you've, you're now must be happy where you're working. What are the things that I guess we wouldn't know about if we've never worked in a, you know, look for a job in a dental practice, what are things to look out for? What are the pitfalls? What are the things that we'd, you'd want to see? I know uh, we had, it was either Harry on, and I think he might have mentioned shadowing for a few days, speaking to everyone in the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the things that, that you've done or that you found that's worked mm-hmm. well? So, I worked at that practice for, I think, two, two and a half years. Then I moved on to another NHS practice with a smaller UDA commitment. Um, and then I did that for a couple of years. And then I'm at where I'm at now uh, in private practice. Um, mm-hmm. So in terms of what to look for, I would say... Oh, and you also asked about um, if you should stay on in your DFT practice. So my principal offered me the option of staying on, but only for two days. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, I've got bills to pay. I need to do a five-day yeah. job. So, yeah, so I said no to him and then I, I worked in an NHS practice for five days a week. Um, in terms of what to look for when you're uh, trying to find the right practice, you want to try and, and get a, you, you want to try and get a sense of the environment that the practice that you're working in. Because every practice mm-hmm. is slightly different and the ethos or the, um, the theme is slightly different as well. 
And you can gauge that all the way down from the nurses all the way up to the, the principals or the practice and the head and the practice managers. Um, so for me, when I was looking for a practice, uh, when I'd left the uh, DFT, one practice that I had an interview at, I had an interview with a practice manager and not the mm -hmm. principal. So I was like, right. obviously you don't really care because you're sending the practice mm -hmm. manager. Like, I don't mind if it's a practice manager and the principal, because then, uh, yeah. then I can understand that they, you know, they actually want you there. But if the principal's not there, then it's a bit like, who runs this practice mm. then? You know. Sure. I mean, maybe that is the way it is for corporates, but I've never worked in a corporate before, so I wouldn't know. Um, but I can also understand it from the flip side that a principal doesn't want to come and do an interview with someone that's just going to take the piss, turn up late, or just not turn up at all when they've got more important things yeah. to do. So I understand it from both sides. Yeah. But for me, not seeing the, not having the principal there or someone senior at the practice there for the interview, other than just the practice manager. It was a bit of a red flag. Um, other than that, I would say try and see, try if you can to get a look at the books as well, to see how booked up the lists sure. are, um, if they're zoning their diaries or if they're not. Zoning, you can zone like NHS and private, or you can zone exams and treatments. It just depends. Not all practices can zone their diaries. The practice I work at now doesn't mm -hmm. zone the diary, but I um, I can manage it because I can book longer appointments and and it's easier for me in that sense. But um, okay. and for people like me who don't know what zoning means, <laughs> just give us a quick run through. So zoning your diary is like um, your practice might have a contract with the NHS to provide NHS treatment within certain hours or mm -hmm. certain times during the day. So out with those oh. times. Uh, it could be that you can only offer private treatment. So you can zone your diary to say, I only want NHS patients booked mm -hmm. in in these times and in those times, only private. And if no private gets booked in, then just leave it blank because then, well, you might not want to leave it blank, but you can say leave it blank because then maybe I can put in a patient that I want to see. Um, other sure. types of zoning are like uh, when, let's say, I don't know, on a one morning or let's say Three days a week you're going to do your NHS and then one day of the week or, or two days of the week, one day of the week, you're going to do only private or you're going to have just an afternoon of private or you're going to have a morning of just exams and then the afternoon is just going to be fillings or just treatment or preps or root canals and that sort of stuff. So you can zone it by treatment or you can zone it by if it's NHS or private, which sounds which sounds weird to me now because I'm in private practice, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, these are the things that I guess that once you start working in practice become mm -hmm. very obvious, but for, you know, uh, FDs especially, um, never yeah. work, never look for a job. So that's, that's really insightful. And then I guess you were saying, you know, when you were um, uni, and I guess maybe even for the first few years of your practicing career, that Instagram wasn't a big thing, and maybe mm -hmm. there wasn't, there may be the same level of kind of CPD and all these courses that there are available now. So what was the first course or what was the first kind of CPD that you took and um, are there any also that you'd recommend um, for FDs? Would you recommend that they start doing courses a mm -hmm. year after FD, two years after FD? Um, and what, what what approach would you take? So um, it's um, it's difficult to answer that in one, in one easy way because I think uh -huh. it depends on, firstly, it depends on the person and it depends on what they've gained from their time in DFT. The next mm -hmm. question is, do they want to improve on their weaknesses or do they want to bolster mm. their strengths? 
You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of how, how are you going to be able to implement the stuff that you learn on a course so soon after DFT into your practicing career? Yeah. So I graduated in 2016. I finished DFT in 2017. Uh, the first course I did was uh, a posterior composite course with uh, mm-hmm. Thomas Taha, uh, who's mm-hmm. just incredible. He is amazing. Um, uh-huh. And I saw the work that he was doing and the composites that he was producing. And I was just like, this is what I want to do. I'm trying to do this in practice, but I can't do it. So I want to learn how to do it properly. So I went on his course. I learned about rubber dam isolation. This, all, this, all this stuff was outside of just, I was just there for composites. But I learned about mm-hmm. how to isolate with rubber dam, what clamps to use, how to use floss ties, how to invert the dam. I learned about, I learned some stuff about photography as well. I learned about sectional matrices and how to use them, how to place them. Um, I learned about different types of ways of restoring te- posterior teeth with injection molding or incremental build-up techniques. Um, I learned how to polish restorations and check the occlusion. So I learned so much from that. And I still, like, mm-hmm. even now, remember all, a lot of that stuff. Um, and I implement it every day into, into my sort of practicing life. Um, so, yeah. So in that sense, that was something that I was interested in. And that was something sure. that I was already doing in general practice, but I wanted to do it to a high level because I thought that this is something that I'm interested in and I can definitely do, be better at. Um, so in that sense, I tried to improve on my strengths. But um, at the same time, I did lots of, um, well, not lots, but I did a few accent courses. Uh, you know, the NHS accent courses. Um, there's like mm. short courses that you can do through the NHS. It used to be called eWisdom um, on like uh, oral surgery stuff, perio. Um, all these sorts of things so you can pick up little bits and pieces and they're relatively cheap as well compared to other courses that are out there um, you also just to go back about things to look out for in practice so sure. you want to go and find out what surgery you're working in what your surgery looks like because yeah. when I started my first job when I went there for the interview I asked the nurse <laughs> if I was in the right place and she just gave me dirties and I was just like oh my god where have I come to uh, but anyway, that was just a miscommunication. It was fine. Um, and then I went in to check my surgery and it was a building site pretty much. Like there were tiles like coming off the, off the wall and like Jeez. bits of the floor coming up. And I was just like, oh my God. I was like, I can't work here. Like, it's not possible. Yeah, It's not possible. Um, but then I, I had a chat with the principal and they were like, look, when you start, the surgery is going to be completely refurbished. Mm. Now, yeah. take that with a pinch of salt regardless of what principle tells you it may not necessarily go to the time scale that they want um but i didn't know any better so i put my i put my trust in them and when i did start it was fine like i did have i did have a new surgery so it was it was all right in that sense um but yeah so you want to check your surgery you want to check what materials they use um in terms of like composites you want to check what bond they use you want to know what the situation is like in terms of ordering uh, equipment and materials specifically for you, how often they do it and that sort of stuff. Um, And you want to know what kind of budget they're working to. And if they say, oh, this is only for private or this is only for NHS, Mm, then you need to kind of work around that. Um, Other than that, just touching on that, sorry, uh, just putting in on that, um, what materials the practice has and what materials... Um, kind of you have yourself I think there's quite a big thing now I think to the two do you know uh, two dentists mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they made a video showing all their massive uh, box of things and they've bought all this equipment themselves. And I think I saw uh, Zane Risby as well um, on one of his stubbers running through his kind of big box that he'll carry from practice to practice. So um, have you invested in, I guess, equipment for yourself? And what would you say are the kind of, if you have, what are the kind of fundamentals or the basics that even an FD that obviously aren't going to break the bank massively that you'd recommend investing in? So... Obviously, the first practice that I was working in, I was kind of limited in terms of the things that I could use. Um, but because it was kind of an associate-led practice, I had a little bit of leeway in that sense to ordering stuff just under mm-hmm. the radar before the principal, it would alert the principal yeah. and I'd get in trouble. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, for sure, invest in yourself, whether that's in courses or that's in materials or just investing in time to better yourself. Whether that's uh-huh. like, sitting in at lunchtime and planning your cases for the afternoon or looking at your photos or uh, doing uh, access cavities on extracted teeth or composites on extracted teeth or preps on extracted teeth, whatever, uh, invest in yourself. Um, And like you said, it's it's becoming big now for associates to invest in themselves. um, And I would definitely encourage you to do that. To an extent, obviously, you want your practice to be able to buy stuff for you as well because you're working within their within their practice. Um, obviously, you're providing a service to your patients, but um, that 50, 60, whatever percentage of your pay that's going to them has to mean something, you know. You can't mm-hmm. just buy everything yourself. I mean, on the mm-hmm. flip side, I've worked with associates that refuse to buy anything themselves. Everything has to come from the practice and they will kick up a fuss if it doesn't happen. Yeah, so mm-hmm. you got you got to be somewhere in between. Unless you're making the practice bank, then bank, then you can't yeah. you can't act like that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, and is that any is there anything specific that you'd say, you, you, or what what have uh, that's had a big difference to you? What have you mm-hmm. bought for yourself? So it really depends on, like I said, I, my situation what? may be different to someone else's. But um, rubber dam wise, I would say um, the Unident rubber dam, just the blue rubber dam. It's cheap and it's easy to use. Um, uh, so rubber dam clamps I bought my own clamps Brinker clamps I don't use um, winged clamps I only use uh, Brinker clamps wingless clamps um, what else uh, composite instruments I bought my own composite uh-huh. instruments I was tired of using the crap that I was in the practice and I wanted to get my <laughs> own stuff I mean granted like one of my instru- it got broken in decon like within about two weeks of me buying them um, but I still have that set of instruments with that yeah. with the scaler that's uh-huh. like missing the little bit at the end <laughs> yeah <that's laughs> um, so yeah so rubber dam clamps composite uh, instruments um, you can sort of play around with like I don't know maybe maybe now these principles are a bit more open to sort of adhesive dentistry but um, obviously I know some at least when I was uh, when I was a young, younger associate um, weren't really that interested in sort of like um, different types of flowable composites, bulk fills, mm-hmm. um, fiber reinforced composites, that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, so maybe a different, maybe a few different bits and pieces of composite equipment. I bought my own sectional matrices. That was um, that was a big one. That's expensive. Well, if you buy the tool VM matrices, they're not expensive. Oh, I've not seen them. I'll look them up. Yeah, the if you can get them from Incidental. Um, mm. So yeah, just I mean I've been through buying the fake ones from eBay, which were absolutely shit yeah, yeah, until yeah. I found the right ones. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so sectional matrices. Um, the expensive thing is the the separating ring. 
the, the sectional matrices um, themselves yes. are not expensive, but the separating ring is expensive. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so you can you can modify some of the rings that come with the 12VM set to help you as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the separating mm -hmm. ring isn't always necessary. So you can get by without it in certain situations as well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, sectional matrices, rubber dam, composite instruments, maybe some composite extras, like I said about fiber reinforced composites. Um, and polishing discs maybe polishing wheels that sort of stuff this is more mostly for like posterior stuff and then you've got your anteriors yeah. like maybe your various strip and that sort of stuff i'm creating a shopping list now of different things another good people are writing it <laughs> <laughs> uh, Zaid, you you were saying from the start which is very interesting for me to hear because we've had a lot of people like yourself who at such a young stage in their careers they're progressing like crazy and one of the one of the very first thing was sort of you started from a place of almost failure. Mm -hmm. I also had to take a gap year as well, but I wouldn't say that I necessarily like you and, and the other people I've heard that sort of went in thinking. Well, I'm I'm probably speaking for you here, but you went in with the almost the purpose of, I know what it feels like to nearly not get this. So while I'm here, I'm gonna I'm gonna smash it. Yeah. Um, that sounds exactly like what you were doing. I was kind of sort of, I went in, I was like, oh, I'm finally in, cool. And then just, you know, keep passing and I'll, and I'll have a good time. And I did. <laughs> but that um, combined with taking loads of photos like you talked about, combined with doing loads of re reflections, it seemed like there's these key things that people should be doing mm -hmm. to just naturally progress. Mm -hmm. What else would you say if you were, you know, talking to us, people who have literally the earliest stage of their dental careers what's the kind of core things that you think that we should keep in our heads the things that we should be doing and things that we shouldn't worry about to just keep progressing and hopefully end up in a position mm -hmm. where we're happy in our life in dentistry so really good question so make mistakes it's okay to make mistakes whether that's with treatments or whether that's with patients and the things that you say or the way that you communicate but you have to learn from those mistakes don't how do I put it? Find your failures and find find in within a treatment the thing that you've done that is the worst, not the worst, but the least least well executed part of the procedure, and yeah. use that and reflect on that to become better. Mm -hmm. I mean, even when I was at, uh, when I was in my final year at uni, my my uh, tutor said I was way too reflective. Like I was, no matter how good I did, I always found a bad thing about it. Mm -hmm. But um, but I feel like being humble with your dentistry um, uh, and your career is the best best thing to help you progress. I mean, some people can blag it and go very far very quickly, but yeah. eventually they'll catch up with them at some point. Yeah. So confidence is great and showing that confidence to patients is also important. I, I mean, we work now within an environment in dentistry where we're very defensive with the work that we do. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes... And we're told that the way we speak to patients, we have to give them all the options and then let them decide. Now, the practice I work in right now, all the patients I see are somewhere between 60 and 90 years old. And then I will give them the whole spiel of all the options that they have. And I say, okay, now you decide. And they say, I don't know, you're the expert, you tell me. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so what am I meant to do in that situation then? Uh -huh. so, so in that sense, being being confident with your with your ability to speak to patients, that really comes across. 
So if you've got, if you know you've got the ability to do a certain treatment, but you've not, you're not getting the uptake from patients in terms of like if you want to do an Emacs on lay, but you can't sell the private option to the patient. It all comes down to the confidence that you, uh, you exude to the patient when you're talking about the treatment options that you provide them. Um, and that makes a massive difference. And if you're not confident in the treatment that you do, then how can you portray that confidence to the patient for them to then accept what you're offering them? You see what I mean? Uh, yeah. And if you're not Absolutely. confident, then you need to find a way to become confident, whether that's reflecting on your own failures or going on courses to learn how to do things better. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's so true. And it's something that I talk to Adam a lot about. I was very lucky in my um, DFT year that I had the opportunity with my practice to go to Ashley Ladder's um, ethical sales course. Yeah. And whilst I felt really out of place because I was literally just out of uni and I'm with all these like big, big shot private guys mm-hmm. um it was fantastic just for that it just gave you the the confidence to just speak say the price you know yeah. say what you're like you're saying believe in it at the end of the day you can you're you're meant to be working in the patient's best interest so give them their best option tell them why this is going to be the best thing for them because you've listened to them you've listened you've you've actually got to know them you listen to what they want and what they need mm-hmm. and you're bringing them the best option for them for that and you're telling them why the other options might not be suitable but are still available and yeah. it just it just means that you just actually have the conversation i think one of the most prominent things in dentistry apart from burnout and stress is that dentists are just so we come out being so rubbish at talking about money oh for sure and that mm-hmm. comes from so many different reasons first of all it definitely comes from a place of guilt mm-hmm. portrayed on us by the society thinking that you know making us think that we have to provide a service yeah and we have to provide it out of our own pocket yeah no for sure no i completely agree with what you're saying i mean even for me sometimes the price might be in my head but by the time it comes out of my mouth it might be 50 percent less 40 percent yeah yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. it's very true yeah, exactly um, whereas there's you've not even had an objection yet mm-hmm. like why exactly and, and that's there's so many different ways to look at it i look at it from a point of view that this is i i every time i start to feel a bit guilty because because i'm doing um i'm even though i'm sort of five days um dct on my weekends, I'll do some private work, and that's been a hard adjustment. But with the price, I've kind of like as soon as I sort of think about it and get a bit guilty, I just remember all those tears that I had during <laughs> my exams, all the sleepless nights, yeah. all the stress, what the amount of work my family had to do to put me through dental school and everything. Mm-hmm. And I just I'm like, okay, here it is. And then so far, I haven't had an objection because it's it's not an objection to you. Yeah, you know, you can't take it personally. So say it. If you get an objection, okay, mm-hmm. explore that. So what is it? So what is it really that you can't? Um, well, obviously there's a way toward it. So I would say, let's say, say, oh, I don't really know, but that's a bit expensive. So okay, so what about the fee concerns you? And the other say is, oh, it's coming up to Christmas and it's a lot right now, and I can't really afford it. So then I'd say, okay, well, this is what your tooth needs. Mm-hmm. So if we do the bare minimum right now, just to keep things stable then let's get you back after Christmas whenever things are a bit better and we can do the finalizing. You know, you can always work around it. Yeah. And and the way, when you talk about it with someone, then they understand that you're on their side. You're not trying to skin them for money. Like, yeah. uh, it, it always sounds. So I just think that's such a, I think one thing that I wish, then obviously there's so many things dental school needs to put in, but I don't want to be there for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things is talking about money, 100%. Because even, yeah. even Adam, I'm sure... Do you, do you find it difficult talking just about NHS banding? Definitely, definitely. And just one thing I, I wanted to add to that is 
obviously the communicating with confidence is really important but I'd, from, for both of you it's kind of dealing with that uncertainty because obviously for you Zahid there'll be the first time you've done that you know bonded emacs it'll be the first time you've done deep margin elevation first time you've done a vertiprep how do you and maybe you don't obviously you're probably not discussing these finer details with the patients but how do you communicate that uncertainty to the patient and how do you deal with that uncertainty within yourself that okay i'm gonna do this and it, it it might not work and obviously even with deep margin elevation you are you're putting a you're lifting the margin but you are creating the technique is is well um evidence but it's still not like a it's not a technique that's been used for years and years and years so how are you um discussing that with the patient in terms of like the prognosis and long term so uh when you it all comes down to how you start it at the beginning so when you your treatment planning the tooth at the beginning obviously while you're working your plan may change but as long as you communicate that to the patient i mean they might be mm -hmm. lying there for like two hours with a rub down on their mouth um, uh -huh. uh, but i'm usually talking them through what i'm doing so i'm like okay we're going to start drilling the tooth now we're going to remove the filling or remove the decay now we're going to do this now we're going to do that you're going to feel some more vibration now because we're going to remove some decay um and then when i use air abrasion i'm just like oh there's going to be a bit of a water water spray so i just talk the patient through the entirety of the process um and mm -hmm. keep them informed about what's happening so they understand that things are changing as we're going along um mm -hmm. so they they're involved in the whole process and they understand that it's bespoke to that situation to them um when it comes to doing things for the first time there's no way i'm telling my patient this is the first time I'm doing this they will walk straight yeah, out of or they'll hold that <laughs> against you when things go wrong you know yeah um so sometimes uh i mean but we all have to start somewhere you know um uh, and we have to gain confidence in ourselves as we go um but uh but yeah so if i'm doing something for the first time then days before like i know that patient's in maybe a week before two weeks before mm -hmm. i'm checking to see just remembering that they're in they're in and then days leading up to it i'm um reading up on the technique again i'm making sure i know what i gotta do and then on the day in the morning i check again i make sure i know what i'm doing at lunchtime if it's in the afternoon i check again to make sure i know what i'm doing i've got everything that i need i talk through yeah. the talk through the case with the nurse, say, we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to do this. More so for myself to remind myself about what we're doing. And then when uh -huh. the patient comes in, then I'm just going through that in my head again. And even like when the nurse is like, okay, are you ready to get the patient in? I'm like, no, I need to go through this in my head one more time. <laughs> one more time. One more time. I need to psych myself up. I need to be ready for this. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah. so I mean, yeah. and, and that, that's even now, like that's even the case now, like if I'm doing a big case, um, and if I know the patient's a bit anxious or something like that, then then I then yeah I have to be ultra prepared. I have to make sure I know exactly what I'm doing. And obviously, um, there's you know there's uh, curveballs that'll be thrown at you during the procedure. Things might not go right, but trying to be in control as much as you can of the situation and just remembering that this is not life or death. You know, like maybe things will go wrong. Maybe you can't finish a treatment because it's just impossible. Or maybe uh, your t the appointment times elapsed or the patient's gone to the toilet five times or something like that. Maybe you need to temporize and get them back in and finish it on another day, you know. Uh, you, need to be, you need to be in control of the situation. You need to be in control of your surgery. And you can use your nurse to help you as well when you're communicating with patients because they can be very handy as a second voice mm -hmm. for the patient to talk to. Whether that's when you're in the surgery or you can take a step out and the nurse can chat to the patient. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, you need to be in control of the situation because I mean, I've been stung many times before running over, trying to do something and it doesn't go right. And then the patient has to come back and get it redone. I mean, I've had the situation where I've um, done immediate dentine sealing on a, on a prep and uh, I didn't uh, use uh, um, an oxygen barrier before I put the temporary on. And then when it came to the fit appointment, I had to draw the temporary off and destroy the prep, had to reprep the tooth. I mean, I was there. My head was in my, in, my, in my lap. Like, head was down in my knee. Like, I was so <laughs> yeah. disappointed afterwards. Like, the nurse uh -huh. had to come and give me, like, a cupcake or something to try mm. and make me feel better. Like, it was, I was distraught. I'll never forget that moment. Yeah. But, yeah, like, you have to... You have to make mistakes to get better. Like, it's just the yeah. way life is. And we don't get to where we are without making mistakes and, and learning from them. We'll keep Absolutely. making the same mistakes again and again if we don't learn from them. But you have to be able to identify where you've been, where where you've been lackluster in your sort of execution of your treatment, or your communication with the patient, or even communication with your nurse. Um, and you you need to be humble about that. You can't be arrogant about it. Otherwise, you'll never progress. Absolutely, and you need to, like you're saying, all of this is coming from stepping outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. something that I sort of have, especially sort of being in hospital and now is sort of seeing a lot. Dentists that have been qualified a lot longer than I have. It's actually you go in mind boggled, and that's usually because, especially when we're young and keen, we we want to be you know top. We want to do really good work, work that we're proud of, that we mm -hmm. can go to sleep happy with. You know, we want to be there for our patients. But then you you start to see actually there's a lot of areas in dentistry that you can just sort of close yourself in a room and just work away, conveyor belt, go home. You there's, you, you can. It's scary how quickly you can actually get comfortable mm -hmm. and just not progress. Yeah. And, that, and that can just go on mm -hmm. for years. You really do have to physically push yourself, yeah. you know, look at a case, be like, oh, that's not for me. But maybe like maybe let me ask someone who's got more experience mm -hmm. to see what they think. Is this something that I could tackle? What's their opinion? And then portray that to the patient. Like, look, this is not the most straightforward root canal. OK, because of this reason, there's a little bend here now. It's not terrible, but it does make more likely for this to happen. I can send you to an endodontist who's going to charge you an arm and a leg, um, but they'll do a very good job. <laughs> or I could try it out, but I don't have as much experience and I have less likelihood to get it right than them. And it might actually mean that that's a go. If you do that, especially whenever you're sort of along the NHS route, then you're opening up those doors for you to attempt and then you start saying, actually, that case where I thought was going to be difficult wasn't so difficult. Or that this is the feel that you have to do. I'm sort of getting that from an oral surgery perspective mm -hmm. at the moment where I'm sort of at the start of saying, like, no, 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 I'll let you do this one. I'll let you do that one. And now I'm picking them up. And all of a sudden, when one goes right, the next one goes right. It's like, oh, OK, actually, I got a bit of a hand of this now. Yeah. And it just takes you just take one or two L's at the start. And then all of a sudden, you're not scared of that treatment anymore. You're not scared of this patient anymore. And it just builds up so quickly yeah. if you just keep edging out of that comfort zone so yeah no i completely agree i completely agree mm -hmm. and i'm sure for you adam like there might be days where you go and you're like one day you're going to be like i'm going to be an oral surgeon next day you uh -huh. do a yeah. banging root canal and you're like you know what maybe i'll be an endodontist, endodontist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or you fit, a, you fit a perfect suction fit complete denture and you're oh. like i could be yeah. a prosthodontist no problem mm. <laughs> and then the next true. day next day it's, you have a denture just, denture just uh, falling out of the patient's yeah. mouth it's not fitting <laughs> And you have to do a remake or you have to do a reline and you're just like, you know what, forget dentistry. Let me find something else to do. 
<laughs> so you can gain momentum very quickly and very easily, but you can also lose it very quickly too. It just takes, no matter how many good cases we have, no matter how many patients sing our praises, it just takes one to write a bad review on Google or something mm -hmm. to destroy your momentum and destroy your confidence. Um, but it's about, I mean, with all things in life, but it's about being able to piece that apart from everything else and keep your self-confidence to know that, you know, I've done this before and it's gone well. Like if I just try and find what it is that went wrong, then I can improve on it. And maybe sometimes the factor is outside of your scope. I mean, I've had, I've, I've seen patients where I've made, uh, I've done a try and for a, pa uh, done a wax rim for a patient and checked, it was a complete denture. To, to do the bite registration. And the, the wax rim just would not come out. It was just stuck there. And I was like, oh, it's amazing. Come to the trying appointment, the thing's just falling out and it's just not staying in place. I'm thinking, what, what happened between what then happened? to now? Like, I didn't change anything. Um, so yeah, some, sometimes, the, sometimes it's out with your control. And sometimes, especially when you're working on the NHS and the pressure that the labs have to provide yeah. work at a lower cost, they don't necessarily have the staff to be able to do the best job that they can do. Um, the worst has ever been. Yeah, so sometimes, sometimes you need to be aware that there's extenuating circumstances that you can't be in control of. So sometimes you and you sometimes need to be able to communicate that to the patient. They might just be like, "This guy's just bullshitting me," you know. Um, and sometimes you are just bullshitting them. Like if the lab work, <laughs> if you, if the lab work uh, isn't there for the, when the patient comes in, yeah, then you yeah. realize you put the wrong date on. You're gonna blame the lab for not sending it in time yeah, <laughs> rather than yourself in front of the patient. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it depends as well, because some patients, if you build a rapport with, then you can be honest with them about these certain things and they take it fine because they know you're human. But other patients just see you as a dentist. They expect the world from you. So you need to be mm. able to gauge different personality types. And sometimes that comes from first communicating with the patient. Something that I picked up from uh, a dentist when I was on a course, uh, which was really helpful. Um, his name's Harmi, Harmi Grewal. Grewal. He does, he yeah. does, yeah. Rubber down. Um, yeah, he's amazing. He he said to me about um, when you got a new patient in the chair, um, asking the patient, what do they want out of you as their dentist? And that can make mm. a whole difference. Because I'll ask him, like, what do you want out of me? That would be my last question before I put the chair back and start my assessment. Um, and I would wow. say, and if they just look at you blankly, like, what do you mean? I just want you to fix my teeth or get rid of my pain. And you'd be like, so do you want me to give you all the options under the sun and then let you decide? Or do you want me to give you a recommendation based on everything that we've discussed? Do you want to just be out of pain or do you want the best option for the tooth? Do you want to be minimally invasive and try and save as much of your tooth structure as possible? Or do you just want something that's just going to stay there and last? but may have implications in the long term in terms of how much tooth structure is left. And if I if something goes wrong, then it may fail and I might have to have the tooth taken out. Do you want me to try and save your tooth or do you want to lose your tooth? Or would you prefer just to have the tooth gone? Like all these sorts of things. Um, and then you can tailor the way that you treat that patient and the communication okay. you have with them based off of that. Also, like just finding out a bit about them as well, like their social history, like what do they do for work? What are they interested in? You can find things that you can... Um, Familiarize, familiarize yourself with the patient and find similarities that you can then communicate on. And then they see you as a human as opposed to just yeah. a robot that's fixing their teeth. Yeah, definitely. That, that, like you said, that treating the, treating the human, not the tooth is yeah. massive. Because I went into FD year thinking, oh, all this work I see on Instagram, I'll do 
you know, I'll do posterior composites on everyone. Elv, every single filling I'm going to do is going to be under rubber dam. I'm going to just just absolutely like smash out. And then you quickly realise that you know this 85 year old you know woman, and she's you know she, she's frail and she doesn't want to lie in the chair and you know it's getting her in and you know taking two hours you know building up every cusp individually it, yeah. it's it's not good dentistry it is good dentistry but it's not doing her you're not serving her in in the best way possible and the base the way that she she needs to be served and i made that mistake quite a few times and you know had my nurse glaring at me and the patient kind of you sit them up and they've been sat there for like an hour and a half and you know you feel bad for them because you're like you didn't like you say you didn't take into account who they were you saw the tooth you saw the gold standard option for this tooth is a lovely composite and i've done i've built up all the cusps and it looks amazing and you know i did an immediate dentin sale and whatever decoupled with time and i you know, clinically it's amazing but they don't care about that they just think you've had me in the chair you took about half an hour to get the rubber dam on and you were yanking my cheek out the way and the clamp was hurting and all of this stuff um and, and they don't understand it so that yeah that's been a massive insight for me so um, uh with regards to what you just said sometimes i would say it doesn't matter if the patient yeah. doesn't like it you're not, basically for me it's like you're not getting an endo if i can't put the rubber dam on if i don't put the rubber dam yeah. on then you can walk out the door you see what I mean? Like, so there's some non-negotiables. And for mm -hmm. you, in your case, like, yeah, you're going to struggle. I struggled with rubber dam at the beginning. I was, our clamps were pinging off and all sorts, all sorts was happening. I was making holes in the rubber dam, everything. Mm. I couldn't floss in between the teeth. It was just a nightmare. But with time and with repetition, yeah. you will eventually find a way to be slick at it. And if yeah. you're still and struggling. So it's, it's present how you present it as well. I think, um, Zach from Smile Stories had something really good recently um, on on his about how he presents the rubber dam to the patient. And like mm -hmm. you say, it's, I think communication and how you present all these options in terms of calling it a blue shield and just presenting it as a as a way to stop, um, you know, getting loads of water in your mouth and people mm -hmm. getting stabbed with the suction and just yeah. presenting the benefits rather than going, oh yeah, we're using this rubber dam blue sheet and then just like smothering the patient with it straight <laughs> away. It's just it's just presenting it in a better way. And just like all of dentistry, it's, it's you know, taking the time to communicate with the patient well and um, presenting the options in a way that helps them make the best decision. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I'm just thinking about the things that I say to the patient. So at the exam appointment, I'll tell them, when you come in for your next appointment, we're going to use a rubber sheet. Um, we're going to put that over the tooth. Um, it's going to be placed so we can, for me personally, I can do this treatment more predictably and the outcomes for the treatment will, will for me, will be better. Um, and it will stop any of the debris from any of the sort of the old filling or any of the decay getting into your mouth. And the only thing you need to worry about is swallowing your own saliva. Uh, one thing I've realized over time is if you offer the patient the option to put the suction underneath the dam, they will ask for that every two minutes. So if you don't even right. give them the option, they'll learn how yeah. to swallow <laughs> their mouth open. Uh, but yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Is there any other kind of communication gems that you've taken from experience, I guess, that you weren't doing as an FD to now, just the way you present things or any just ideas? So, um, I mean, in general, or do you mean specifically rubber dam? No, no, just generally, yeah. So, um, like I said about gauging the personality type of the patient is important yeah. at the beginning. Sometimes you won't know, like, I mean, you'll do like these sessions, maybe with Ashley Lassa, I'm not sure, but you, you sort of like do a little question and you figure out what the personality type was of the patient. Yeah. But over time, you kind of just realize, like, if you've got a patient that comes in 
that is not there for the chat whatsoever, everything is yes or no, then you know that they're not interested in an experience. They're just there to get it done and get out. But those may also yeah, be the sure. patients that want the best treatment and they just expect you to be able to give it to them there and then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other patients where they might need to speak to their spouse or their family member or get someone in and discuss it with them. I mean, you might do some beautiful work and then they'll go away and they'll be like, oh, but my, my friend had a look and she doesn't like it. And then it's the worst thing in the world. And then you have to remove it all and redo it. Um, so being able to gauge the personality types of the patients is very important. Um, being able to, so all the practices that I've worked at, I have worked with trainee nurses. Uh, 